0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. From Delicate Arch to Zion Narrows, Utah's five national parks and eight national monuments are home to some of America's most amazing scenic treasures. In his new book, Wonders of Sand and Stone, Frederick Swanson presents little known accounts of people who saw in these sculptured landscapes something worth protecting introducing us to early explorers, scientists, artists, and travelers, as well as the local residents and tourism promoters who worked with the National Park Service to build the system of parks and monuments we know today. Frederick Swanson is author and editor of five books on Western U.S. history, including Dave Rust, A Life in the Canyons, which received the 2008 Utah Book Award. He's a fellow of the International League of Conservation Writers and recipient of the Wallace Stegner Prize in Environmental Humanities. Pleasure to welcome uh, Frederick Swanson back to the program. Uh, Thanks for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be with you, Tom. Um,
0: I I want to start with uh, something in the preface that uh, struck me. Uh, You say you were teaching um, adult education class, University of Utah. You asked your students what went through their minds when they first saw Arches, Zion, Canyonlands, or another Utah's uh, national parks. What, uh, What did they say?
1: Well, I found in their answers kind of a common thread of just being awestruck when they first set sight on some of these scenic features. One of the folks in my class in particular uh, said something that really struck me. That She had recently moved here, this was some years ago, from back east. And one day she just drove down to Arches National Park and headed up the entrance road, said she didn't have a map with her. She stopped at a trailhead and just set off on this trail. And after a mile and a half, she kind of rounded a little corner in the sandstone, and there was this arch. She said, that's the one on the license plate. Well, she'd seen delicate arch, of course. And I thought, what a wonderful way to experience Utah's national parks without any preconceptions, and all of a sudden, there it is. So that's really a theme that goes way back to even some of the early explorers of our national parks, of just being kind of thunderstruck at how unusual these landforms are.
0: Yeah, words, words like wonder and awe right, run through not only current, but, uh, but these, these early visitors to these areas.
1: Well, the word wonder I, I chose for my title deliberately because, in a way, it's kind of an archaic term. You go back to the accounts of our national parks early in the 20th century, and that term is used a lot. In fact, uh, Zion Canyon was often described as a valley of wonders. Bryce Canyon initially was called a new wonderland. And even uh, in Timpanogos Cave, which is a national monument now, that was uh, its first name was Wonder Cave. So I kind of wanted to just resurrect that term a little bit, because I think it's, it's a useful one to describe the feelings we many of us experience, if not all of us, when we're confronted with these, these amazing and beautiful landforms.
0: You write that um, as these areas become ever more popular, it's worth asking why these places were set aside in the first place, and for what purposes. And, and you connect this to this sense of awe and wonder.
1: I think that those terms, awe, wonder, uh, amazement, lie at the heart of our uh, enjoyment and our urge to protect great, magnificent landscapes. And uh, I think Ken Burns, when he came out with this uh, tremendous series on our national parks back in 2009, hit on that theme, and that was really part of the inspiration for me to write this book. Uh, But there are other factors at work as well, and in Utah, you have a very keen interest on the part of business and civic leaders, uh, both here in Salt Lake City and in uh, southern Utah, um, to develop these uh, scenic treasures that we have into something that might support a tourism industry. And so you have both, I guess you would say, the, the Intellectual or aesthetic sense of these landscapes and also a practical sense of their value. And those tended to work together to promote the interest in um, setting aside these national parks.
0: Of course, you write this history in the context, and of course, and you mentioned, treat this in the book, of current conflicts, some of which have have gone way back, um, and uh, dangers to these areas. Uh, you know, floodlight you mentioned from a, a nearby uh, coal strip mine and uh, near Bryce Canyon, oil and gas wells creeping closer to arches and canyon lands, uranium prospects uh, adjoining Capitol Reef, uh, you know, helicopters dropping off, canyoneering parties uh, bordering uh, canyon lands, not to mention looting. Um, and, and this says, what I just mentioned there, it says nothing about the, you know, the dangers of, of parks being loved to death. So that that's the context, I guess.
1: Yes, and i I suspect that the people who envisioned our national park system early in the twentieth century just could not have imagined uh, uh, these these issues arising the way they have. in fact it, it's it's kind of amusing you you read some of the early uh, accounts of let's say Zion national parks and you have people with the uh, with the railroad who are advertising the area saying that you know, if, if we do our job, there might be as many as, as uh, 30 or 40 people a day coming into Zion Canyon. <laughs> and, and now, of course, Zion uh, draws more visitors than Yellowstone. It's the fourth most visited unit of our entire national park system. Um, and this presents, of course, some tremendous dilemmas for the, the superintendents and rangers that manage these areas of How do we accommodate all these people without destroying the very thing they're coming to see? And then on top of this, as you mentioned, Tom, there's the the challenges from outside of the park borders, from all kinds of resource development activities. What I wanted to do in this, this book was somehow tie together national parks and put it in the context of the larger landscape of the Colorado because I think we have to look at this region as a whole and not just as a collection of individual scenic features. Because really, they're going to rise or fall based on what happens within the whole region.
0: I wonder. Just parenthetically, before we jump into some of the history, um, the, uh, the pandemic has been a kind of an interesting case study. Um, you know, that many of the parks closed for a time, visitorship, you know, dropped. And therefore, ease some of the pressure. Um, but I wonder what your uh, thoughts were, and, and did this affect you personally? Were you, uh, you know, were there times where you wanted to go out and visit them, some of these areas and couldn't because of the pandemic?
1: Well, for a short time, of course, uh, uh, people. Were, when the, the Park Service was saying, "Please, just stay away uh, at the moment." And uh, so, actually, my wife and I visited some areas outside of the national parks where, frankly, we were more socially isolated than we would have been in town, Uh, some of the areas on BLM lands. But what's surprising is that overall, the the numbers are really just coming in now. The total visitation to our parks here in Utah did not drop all that much. Uh, I've seen figures like 5%, 8%. And recently, this fall, they're rebounding to higher numbers than ever, Zion recently set a new record for attendance in the month of September. And in arches, uh, the uh, park officials had to actually close the gates a total of 36 times because so many people wanted to get in the park. They just felt that the capacity was being exceeded. So, uh, yes, there was a dip, but it's almost like people you know, had this pent-up demand and said, boy, I really want to get back there.
0: And, of course, that presents uh, pressures and and perhaps (laughs) dangers for those gateway communities, uh, people packed into the gateway communities, even though they might be spread out when they get into the parks.
1: Well, it had to have been difficult in places like Moab and Springdale, where, uh, of course, so much of their economy is dependent on tourism. Uh, But there's really a a longer and more ongoing debate going on in these places about We really want to continue to encourage such large numbers of people to come here. And, you know, there are people involved in the industry who really look at it that way, that that they want those millions of people to come. Well, there's others, and I guess I put myself in this camp, who uh, really prize some solitude, perhaps, that used to be a little bit easier to find in some of these places.
0: Uh, So you've experienced this, some some areas you like to go to become more crowded?
1: Well, absolutely. In fact, I I opened my book with the scene of the first time I came uh, to Arches National Park. The first time I'd ever seen a Utah park was in, boy, that was 1977 in late December. And we drove into Devil's Garden Campground, and there was almost no one there. Very few people on the trails. And now, of course, if you go to Arches, any time other than the depth of winter, uh, you have a lot of people there. And I'm, I'm of two minds about that. I think a lot of people are. It's really nice to see people from all over the country, from all walks of life, all over the world, really, enjoying these landscapes. And that's actually something that goes way back in, in the history of these areas, because early on, in the early 1900s, the the civic leaders here, business leaders in Utah, uh, wanted to share these places with the public. They took a lot of pride in them. They felt this is something that the world ought to see. And uh, I, I think that feeling was more than just wanting the dollars for tourism. It was a, a real sense of pride.
0: Um, I to. I'll read this quote. Um, John Eyes, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Um, you say, a prominent historian of America's national parks. Uh, this is his quote. The national park system arose not as a result of public demand, but because a few far-sighted, unselfish, and idealistic men and women foresaw the national need. Um, in, in, in some cases, you know, the, there could be no public demand because the public didn't know about these places, but later on, uh, and that's kind of a paradigm shift. Uh, and so you uh, you set out to introduce us to some of these uh, far-sighted individuals. And maybe we could begin uh, where you do in the book, uh, the Macomb uh, Expedition, 1859. It was interesting for me to read uh, the, their descriptions of this land, you know, through their eyes, discovering this uh, for the first time for them.
1: Yes, uh, it's a good place to start because... I, This this expedition was fielded by the U.S. Army in 1859 under Captain Maycomb to find a way across the Green and Colorado Rivers down to the settlements um, on the Virgin River. And this was actually a military expedition because the Army was afraid there might be war with with Brigham Young's followers. So they're down there uh, trying to find a way, into the canyon surrounding the confluence of the Colorado and Green and basically getting lost. And they probe down these deep canyons and suddenly there's this enormous spectacle of buttes and pinnacles and weird, strange rock formations all around them. And it's interesting to read their journals because they're trying to make sense of this landscape that's unlike anything they've seen. And What they do, and we see this over and over again in these early scientific explorations, is they they turn back to architectural metaphors, to classical allusions. They're comparing the Six Shooter Peaks and Canyonlands with the pyramids of of Egypt. They're seeing uh, ruined Greek temples and these cliffs that are crumbling down and kind of just putting this whole... European template onto the landscape, and that became kind of the way that people thought about this country for, for quite a long time. So as I write, they were really setting the, the stage and hanging the backdrop, if you will, for our understanding of this highly unusual area.
0: You write that the, these uh, Utah canyon lands were where manifest destiny ran aground, <laughs> um, and uh, a little later on uh, in the book, you you talk about how you know these many of these people were coming from well watered lands. Uh, here's the here's the quote: "To those who came from well watered eastern states, something about this land seemed to defeat human effort." Uh, That's you know it's a big paradigm shift for these, uh, along with wonder and awe. It, it's. It, you know, what do we do with these lands? What, how do we respond to these lands?
1: Well, that's certainly the case. And uh, another historian, uh, Paul Nelson, has written uh, uh, about this subject of, of people coming to Utah and, and, and to southern Utah in particular, and they, they want to make something of it. They want to settle there and make the desert blossom, and yet it just resists all their efforts. And so what you have is all around the rim of the canyon country region, you have these Mormon settlements in little towns like Escalante and Canab and uh, Caneville, which is really as far as as these very industrious settlers were able to penetrate into the canyon country. Beyond that, it was mostly cattlemen who were ranging their, their herds in these areas and uh, That's really why we were ultimately able to set aside some of these areas, because they just couldn't be settled.
0: Yeah, so cattlemen, that's interesting. So early on, and and of course, that continues today and produces some disputes, right, in some of these areas.
1: Yes, well, cattle grazing is, is of course, no longer allowed in our national parks, but on virtually all of the uh, Bureau of Land Management holdings, which make up the areas around the parks, uh, the, it is allowed. Um, and livestock grazing turned out to be pretty controversial in the establishment of some of our national parks. This, this is an evolution here, because when Zion National Park was set aside in, um, in, the, in 1919, the first ranger down there, Walter rush was able to work with the settlers who for decades had been running their cattle and horses up into that canyon, you know, wonderful pasture up there. And he secured an agreement that, okay, let's, let's take these animals out of here and let's just make it apart. But as time went on, that got to be harder and harder uh, in the designation of places like Capitol Reef. The uh, local ranchers had used many of those canyons going through the water pocket fold for stock driveways. And so some of that use was actually grandfathered in for a period of years, and then in 1964, when Canyonlands was established, uh, grazing was was uh, again grandfathered in for a time. You know, if you had an existing allotment there, you were able to continue to run your your cows until uh, you know, until the owner passed away, and then ultimately that reverted to. Uh, no longer having livestock use there, but outside of the parks, of course, the grazing continues, and uh, there's there's a real sense that uh, people have of not wanting to end that.
0: You uh, you know that uh, John Wesley Powell and his expedition, he had a, you know a bunch of uh, geologists, geographers, uh, other folks on his expeditions. You say they they had the most lasting influence on our understanding of Utah canyonlands.
1: Well, Powell was, of course, the the great publicist of the uh, Interior West, and uh, had a wonderful way of words. But uh, so did some of the science scientists that uh, he brought in to um, to do the geology and, and map this landscape. Clarence Dutton, of course, was prominent among them. He he was a classically trained geologist, and you have this wonderful combination of a someone who could write about the the faults and the anticlines and all of these geologic terms, but then bring in allusions to Greek literature and and depict this landscape in such wonderful, glowing terms. uh, I I think that really kind of began to raise the consciousness that here in in the Colorado Plateau, this wasn't just wasteland anymore. It wasn't bad land, as Paul Nelson has, has put it. It was um, something that had meaning and value beyond our ability to extract resources from it.
0: Uh, it this caught my attention. You're just skipping around a, a little bit, won't have the time, obviously, to, to treat everybody you treat in the book. Uh, by the way, you were talking with Frederick Swanson. Wonders of Sand and Stone: A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments is the, is the book, just out. Uh, so you talk about John Wetherill. And uh, this caught my attention. Of course, you're focused on the locals, but uh, he hosted, he guided a couple of uh, famous visitors to Rainbow Bridge.
1: Weatherall was one of those guides back in the early 1900s who um, found a way to eke out a living by uh, taking tourists into some of these very remote areas. There were others uh, like him, like Zeke Johnson over in Natural Bridges. But Wetherill, with his wife Louisa, and uh, partner, Clyde Colville, had established a trading post in the little uh, Navajo settlement of Kayenta. Uh, and he was assigned to be the ranger at uh, one of the national monuments that had been established in the canyons there at Keats Seal. But in 1909, he was tapped uh, by Professor Cummings here at the of Utah to guide them into the Rainbow Bridge area uh, in what was termed a discovery expedition, but there's some evidence that Wetherill already knew about this great nat- natural bridge down there. And, of course, the uh, Navajo and Paiute Indians who had been in that area, had uh, some of them had already seen it. So Wetherill guided this party uh, through this very convoluted, slick-rock country. And uh, uh, there's an interesting story there about two of the individuals on this expedition, William Douglas and uh, Byron Cummings, who were kind of jostling for position on their horses to be the first to see the bridge. And Wetherill, being you know, the guide that he was, was kind of hanging back and letting them do this uh, with all probability that he had already seen it. So that's just one of the exploration tales, which ultimately led to publicizing uh, Rainbow Bridge. Later on, Weatherill guided Zane Gray, the uh, Western author, into the uh, bridge in 1913, along with Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who was making a tour of the Southwest with uh, several of his sons. So this was really the great area of, Era of exploration of this country, and it's just fascinating to read these early accounts of of people traveling through these deserts and encountering the native people and seeing these wonderful sights.
0: I believe you write that Zane Grey put some of this in uh, in one of his novels uh, called *The Rainbow Trail*. Uh, How would uh, how the public at large would have been uh, have been receiving? Uh, these, you know, encountering this in a novel or or reading published accounts. Um, at this point, how have they been receiving this uh, these these tales of these these fantastic lands?
1: Well, it's a good question because really, Zane Grey was the great popularizer. I mean, some people read Powell's reports, but at one point, I believe, by around 1920, Zane Grey was the most read author and the best-selling author in in the country. And he was presenting uh, all of this country in Arizona, New Mexico, southern Utah as this this place where you could come and discover the real West. It still existed out there. It hadn't disappeared. And there was a tremendous hunger for this. Uh, There was a sense among many people living in the cities of the East that We've lost the frontier, something is closed off, and we need to keep a hold of this heritage that we've had. So, Zane Grey's novels fed this hunger, and uh, in the course of writing about places like Rainbow Bridge and the Grand Canyon, uh, he really introduced a lot of it to a popular audience.
0: Of course, this gets us into the symbolic value of these lands, uh, I, I think, right? Because uh, still today, many people. May never visit one of these uh, national parks. Uh, you know, it's in Utah, for example. Um, but for for many people, they they will continue to have symbolic value.
1: Indeed, they will. And although I'm I'm starting to wonder if anyone hasn't seen Utah's
0: park, ah, yeah. <laughs> might be true. Uh,
1: at some point, or at least uh, have seen it on. Uh, Billboard somewhere or in a a magazine or on social media. These, uh, I mean, Delicate Arch, uh, the Great White Throne, these have become iconic landscapes. Um, But there's a part of me that that wants to see people come to places like uh, not just Zion and Bryce Canyon and Arches, but to maybe happen across a place. Capital Reef, uh, one of our five national parks here, uh, was until very recently kind of an out-of-the-way place. And and it was almost just a stop on the way from going from uh, Moab over to Bryce Canyon. And I've often heard, my wife and I, if we've been down there, uh, people say, wow, I didn't know this place existed. That's really neat. And so I think there's a value to not having every place completely publicized that because it allows this sense of personal discovery and and no it's not like you know riding out with John Wetherill in 1909 but it's still something that we we all can enjoy to a degree.
0: If you just join us we're talking with Frederick Swanson his new book is called Wonders of Sand and Stone it's a history of Utah's National Parks and Monuments and uh, let's take a break when we come back uh, more uh, with Frederick Swanson. You can reach this uh, conversation as well with your question or comment uh, d- by email to upraccess@gmail.com, at gmail.com, at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800 826 800-826-1495. More following this.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and Utah State University Extension 4-H, receiving grants from the Utah STEM Action Center for Computer Science and Robotics Clubs in the Washington County School District. The grants will run for three years to assist with the challenges of intergenerational poverty. Support also comes from the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing the great outdoors with hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com or visit 199 North Main in Logan. This week, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, a crocheting mathematician, and a man obsessed with the Kabbalah are all looking for a number. But they're not sure what it is. They're looking for intentional design in the universe. Doesn't that sound nice? Next time, on to the best of our knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And we're uh, talking with Frederick Swanson. His new book is Wonders of Sand and Stone, a history of Utah's national parks and monuments. So, uh, Frederick Swanson, I uh, wanted to talk next about uh, tourism, powerful force, uh, which, which, you know, had much to do with increasing visitation, of course, tourism efforts uh, to these areas. And, and therefore, um, in some cases, uh, helping to get designations as monuments and, and parks, I believe. Um, so I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the, the you know, the, the power of, of that push um, and, and centered on the railroads. Which, which saw, I guess at a certain point, uh, great utility for their business in, in promoting scenic areas.
1: Yes, they did. And When you look at our other great national parks in the West, like Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, it was the railroads who, uh, in, in many ways, were responsible for them being designated in the first place. The, the Great Western Railroads, the Union Pacific, the Northern Pacific, Santa Fe, wanted to augment their freight service by increasing passenger traffic. And so they set up these uh, touring concessions in the national parks to lure visitors there. They advertised and promoted them heavily. The Union Pacific uh, put out uh, something like half a million dollars back in the 1930s or 20s to promote Zion and Bryce. And what they would set up, uh, in cooperation, working with local promoters, uh, there was two brothers in Cedar City, the Perry brothers, who had kind of a rough-and-ready concession for taking people by car to uh, Zion Canyon. So they would work with these people and develop uh, a little more sophisticated approach where they would uh, meet tourists at a rail station take them over the rather poor roads to places like Zion, go on to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, up to Bryce Canyon, and stop at Cedar Breaks. Uh, That particular tour was five or six days. Uh, You'd have a a nice, elegant uh, park lodge to stay in in the evening. And it was a package tour that appealed to tourists who didn't necessarily want to rough it. So that was kind of the face of, of... Tourism initially in our parks, but as the automobile became more popular, that steadily ate into the railroads' um, tourism revenues. And by the 1950s, you see the Union Pacific uh, abandoning its uh, formal park tours in favor of the automobile. Of course, uh, by the time um, Tom probably when you and I were young, uh, getting in the station wagon with the family and going to visit the parks was kind of how it was done.
0: Yep, yep. We, as a kid, I certainly took trips in the station wagon. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I was fascinated by the um, the marketing, the early marketing. Uh, you talk about um, let me pull up his name here. His name is Harris. Um, Fisher Harris.
1: Fisher Harris, yes.
0: Yeah, who who worked for I guess the forerunner of uh, of the Chamber of Commerce, and he he came up with a pretty effective uh, slogan.
1: Yes, he's an interesting character. Uh, he he was with the Salt Lake Commercial Club, which, as you said, was a, a forerunner to the Chamber of Commerce, and this was in the uh, era just before and, and including World War One when. Wealthy people on the East and West Coast, if they wanted a vacation, they went to Europe. That was the place you you went to, to see uh, all the great sites there. And Harris had this idea that, hey, out here in the West, we have sites that are the equal of anything in Europe, and we need to start promoting that. So he coined the slogan, See America First. And it was interesting to me that the whole idea of See America First originated right here in, in, in Utah. Fisher got together a a, a big meeting of uh, publicists and travel promoters and newspaper people for a convention in Salt Lake City. Um, The date escapes me. It was like 1910 or something. And uh, began promoting this idea that our homegrown scenery was worth a visit. And in fact, uh, they were saying that this was patriotic, Went into World War I, the feeling was is that we will, uh, if Americans know and appreciate and love the scenery of our country, then we'll be willing to fight for it. And so it got tied into the whole patriotic effort. But this was, was largely a homegrown effort that began in Utah and then kind of spread nationwide as a way of uh, promoting our own scenic wonders.
0: You also right that the, the newspapers, Salt Lake newspapers, uh, would, you know, in an effort to be helpful, Tribune and the Desert News uh, would, would publish road logs for tourists who wanted to see the, the parks.
1: Yes, and this is another fascinating chapter in the early history of our parks. There was a, a fellow named Bill Rischel who actually was a bicycle racer, he used to go out on the, the track that they had out at Salt Air and take part in these bicycle races, who uh, took up auto-touring, and he had um, um, one of these powerful early roadsters, and he'd set off for places like Bryce Canyon or Monument Valley and keep a road log, which would be published in the Salt Lake Tribune under the name of the Pathfinder. and Other papers had these kind of road logs, too. And this was an era in which it really was an adventure to get in your car if you had one, set off for these remote wastes out in the desert where gas stations were maybe a day's drive apart, and if your car broke down, you had better know how to fix it yourself, because there wasn't much help out there. So this is how automobile tourism started in the uh, the 19-teens, 1920s, through these guidebooks that people like Richel and the
0: newspapers promoted. (laughs) Yeah, I love the story that uh, Mr. Richel, his car broke down and he had to be towed into, what, Hurricane <laughs> by a horse team? <laughs>
1: well, that actually happened to Stephen Mather. Oh, that was Mather, okay. <laughs> the National Park Service. I mean, you imagine him out there. He's trying to get to Zion, and he winds up having to lodge with a local family because his car's broken down. But that was just part of the fun back then. You had to have a, a spirit of adventure because you know, not everything was was slickly Packaged for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about the, the, the It's a whole uh, it's a whole big project to get to get a road, passable road, into what became the the main area of Zion National Park, right? The Little Zion, they called it, the, the main canyon there. Yeah,
1: and this is where you see local promoters and business people taking such a keen interest in developing first a national monument and then a national park in Zion, because. Uh, they saw this partly as a means of getting the federal government to come out and do some road building for them. These little communities like Rockville and Springdale and Hurricane were very isolated in the early 1900s, and they wanted roads to kind of connect them with the rest of Utah and the rest of the world. So it was, it was a real cooperative effort between the, the local boosters of tourism and the federal government through the National Park Service and the Bureau of Public Roads to come up with the appropriations and begin to blade passable roads. The first road into Zion Canyon was completed in 1917, and it went as far as about where the Zion Lodge is today. And, you know, it it wasn't paved. Uh, If if it rained, it turned into mud hole, and, and you had to deal with that. But as time went on and more federal money became available, eventually it was extended up to the Narrows in Zion, as we know today. And at that point, you saw more and more people venturing into the canyon in their cars.
0: And at a certain point, uh, I I don't know what point it would would have been, Uh, these areas would have become important economically, right? Um, At least alongside other more traditional means of making a living.
1: And that was taking place really from the start, and in in a small way. Uh, People in towns like Springdale uh, would start a gas station or a little grocery and uh, begin to service the tourists that were coming in. You saw this in other places like Moab, even even the tiny little village of Fruta, which is now within... Capitol Reef National Park at one time uh, had uh, a couple of little motels in it. Um, So it was a way for people to make some money on the side, but it was only much later, I think. Uh, In fact, in Utah, um, it wasn't really until the 1970s that you started to see major chain hotels start to come in large numbers. you, of course, had the, the railroad lodges and the Bryce, Cedar, Breaks, and Zion. But it um, was a slow el- evolution. It didn't happen as quickly as at other places, such as Zion or Grand Canyon.
0: I want to have you talk a little bit about um, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter day Saints. So the, what were the Latter day Saints? Of course, they're, early on, they're just eking out a living in some of these areas, right? But, um, but some members of the Church were, I think, very important in, uh, in the formation of, of some of these national parks.
1: Yes, they were. And when you look at a place like Zion, you find some of these early settlers, um, one of them in particular, a fellow named Isaac B. looked. Uh, he had a little settlement um, that he had founded with his wife and family up in the canyon, Uh, just a little cluster of of, uh, cabins where they hung out in the summer. But he was really struck by the sense of refuge and shelter that he experienced there. And uh, he took to calling the canyon Little Zion uh, in in the sense of it being a refuge from the the travails of the rest of the world. There's a charming story about how people... uh, uh, called uh, riding past Behunen's uh, little settlement and seeing him just sitting outside his cabin gazing up at the cliffs. So um, that that tied in, I think, with some of the, uh, the religious sense of awe, of this is part of God's creation here, that fit in with, with uh, Latter-day Saint religious beliefs. Later on in Zion, you had... Um, fellow by the name of Hershey, David Hershey, who uh, was the bishop in Rockville, who became a a very strong promoter of the park and actually uh, befriended uh, Stephen Mather and and his assistant, Horace Albright, would take them on tours. And this happened to a degree in other places. Up in Capitol Reef, you have uh, Ephraim Pechtole, who was, uh, again, uh, the local LDS bishop, uh, promoting the area as a national park. So... uh, A definite kind of symbiosis, I guess you would say, there.
0: Let's take another break when we come back to our last segment with uh, Frederick Swanson. Uh, The book is Wonders of Sand and Stone A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. Uh, More following this.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members, and Project Resilience Programming is brought to you by USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu.
0: Franz Schubert was terribly sick when he wrote this and had a feeling he might never be healthy again. He wrote this in the style of a dance meant to
1: ward off death. It's a musical reflection on mortality by the young
0: Franz Schubert on the next Performance Today from APM.
2: This evening at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Frederick Swanson, author of several books, the latest of which is Wonders of Sand and Stone, A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. You're welcome to join us uh, by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, with your question or comment. Um, so Frederick Swanson, I want to talk about the formation of uh, National Monuments Um which, of course, is under the purview of presidents under the Antiquities Act. And I, I think early on, um, the, the presidents and, and adherents were, uh, I guess, adhering to a view of a kind of a, a less grand view uh, of this power. And and some today still are saying that this, in order to follow the, the spirit of the Antiquities Act, it, it got to be small, just protecting certain smaller areas. But at a certain point, that changed, right? I think 1930s. um, Tell me about that.
1: Well, actually, it changed uh, almost right from the start, thanks to uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And as one of your previous guests this summer, David Gessner, pointed out, uh, in 1908, uh, Theodore Roosevelt used the Antiquities Act to set aside an 800,000-acre national monument at the Grand Canyon. So right almost from the start, the Antiquities Act was was passed in 1906, and Roosevelt designated initially a few small monuments, um, including natural bridges in Utah in 1908. But almost immediately, he expanded the scope of the monument to include these much, much larger landscapes that he felt and others have felt were of tremendous scientific value as a whole, and not just... Small, particular, let's say, um, pueblo and structure, or dwelling, or something like that. So this this conflict, you're right, has has, has continued, but it's been there really from the start, and uh, of course has played out in in a number of forms here in Utah, most notably uh, with the Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monument. I should mention here just in passing that uh, Utah now has nine national monuments with the designation of the uh, Jurassic National Monument in Emory County around the the, uh, Cleveland-Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry. And that, that again, is a small monument. I think it's 350 acres. So you kind of have both of these conceptions um, side by side.
0: And now, as we've mentioned in previous programs, uh, now uh, you know it looks like it's going to come to a head. It's in the courts, Antiquities Act, and uh, and uh, of course you have kind of a whiplash effect with uh, President Obama declaring a larger monument, President Trump uh, scaling that back, not only Bears Ears but uh, Grand Staircase Escalante, and with the President Biden, who knows, might go back the other way.
1: I think there's a lot of eyes on this now, uh, looking at what the Courts will decide, and, and it's almost certain to go to the Supreme Court on the, uh, the uh, President Trump's rescission of Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears. And it's really going to determine a lot. Uh, is a national monument going to be a designation that will endure? Uh, and we won't have this kind of back and forth, which uh, I think everyone agrees would, would really diminish the, the whole meaning of of, of these monuments, um, or perhaps is it something that's going to have to be taken up ultimately by Congress? I don't know. There's a lot of strong opinion on that, of course, on both sides, um, and uh, I don't have a crystal ball to really know how that's going to play out.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We do have an email. that's come in from Glenn. Uh, Glenn says, my wife and I have endeavored to visit all of the national parks and as many of the national monuments as we can. This has been amazing. So far, we've visited all of the national parks west of the Mississippi River, except for Big Bend in Texas. As I said, this has been nothing short of amazing. For souvenirs, we always take a selfie-style photo of ourselves at the entrance sign, and we have our uh, we have our head uh, the passport-style books, which we stamp and sticker for every park. I highly recommend this; great memories. Sadly, we were in the Rocky Mountain National Park just two weeks ago before the fire. So sad to hear about the fires there. Have a great day. That's uh, that's Glenn. So he's uh, he and his wife are they're visiting all of them west of the Mississippi.
1: Yes, and how wonderful that is. Uh, go out with your family or, or your, your partner and, and discover these places. There's, of course, many that I have yet to see, and, and I'm with my wife, and I'm looking forward to it. So I think, really, national parks are America's great scenic patrimony. And um, I was really struck by a comment uh, that a visitor to our country made back in 1912. Uh, this, this was a uh, James Bryce, who is the British ambassador to the United States. And if I could take a minute, Tom, just to present
0: that
1: notion of... Bryce is credited with saying uh, in this this address he gave that national parks were America's best idea. But he said something else as well, and he was kind of lecturing us to say, don't take these places for granted. Uh, his, His phrase was, when it comes to scenery... You do not have any more than you need, and he was saying that in 1912. So think of how we need to look at that today in terms of protecting this wonderful uh, legacy of, of not just scenic landscapes, but cultural uh, resources, scientifically valuable places, ecologically valuable places.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that, that's that is a very impactful. Uh, statement and and you know sentiments that many people hold today, right?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, in a way, you, you know, you mentioned Tom earlier the pandemic and how that uh, depressed travel to the parks for a while, and yet here it's rebounded. And to me, it's it's like we turn to our national parks and other scenic and wilderness lands in times of of, of difficulty, perhaps. Uh, I think of it as a as means of reassuring ourselves that something important is still there. It's, it's almost like checking our bank account. Uh, or are we still good here? And um, I've spoken with a number of people who have just felt a sense of great reassurance that these wonderful um, and evocative landscapes are still there.
0: It's interesting, um, and that ties in with what, with what you just said, uh, National Geographic, I was just reading this. Um, they just published a piece, I think it was on election day or soon after. Um, and they said on election day we asked Americans what they loved about this country. And by al- almost hundred percent it was it was it was land. it was favorite places. That was very interesting to, to, to me. that um, that that is where at least the people that National Geographic um, talked to went in their, their minds and hearts.
1: Well, it really says a lot, and that's, that's an old, old theme in, in America. Uh, uh, how many writers have written about the way in which we are creatures of the land? And, and Stuart Udall, the Secretary of the Interior, wrote back in 1963, uh, each generation has its own rendezvous with the land. He was writing at a time when we were debating the creation of Canyonlands National Park uh, and, and how wonderful it was that we that uh, we pushed, that pushed through and we, we got that National Park. But as I've tried to point out in this book, uh, our current generation has another rendezvous that we need to make to examine these places in the light of the conflicts and the dilemmas that we face now with everything from crowding to, to uh, you know, you mentioned nighttime lighting. And are we going to take the actions we need to do to, to secure that legacy for the next generations?
0: What, uh, what is your sense? Are you hopeful about that? Because especially as you talk to the younger folks who are going to have a longer uh, road with this.
1: Well, you know, every time we go out, and I don't care if it's just here in the Wasatch or down in our national parks, I'm seeing more and more young people out on the trail. And, um, you know, you talk to them and and to to folks of of our generation, uh, older folks, um, and you just hear the same thing over and over again of how wonderful these places are. These are important to, to me. I want my children and my grandchildren to see this. Uh, I think that's something pretty solid, um, and for anyone in a position of political influence to come along and say, oh, these landscapes are really expendable, we have more important needs right now, I think they're going to run into some pretty strong opposition, if I may say so.
0: Mm. Well, it's a good place to end the conversation. We're out of time. Uh, Frederick Swanson's new book is Wonders of Sand and Stone, A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. That's just out from University of Utah Press. Uh, You can find uh, Frederick Swanson at his website, fredswansonbooks.com. That's fredswansonbooks.com. Frederick Swanson, it's been a a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Always great to talk with you. Good good to talk with you as well. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. This is a one-minute preview of episode 10 of Debunked. Episode 10
1: debunks the myth all Native Americans do is drink, gamble, and take money from the government.
2: It can be so challenging to bust through this frame, this box that you've been placed in. As a Native American individual, you have the sovereignty to decide who you are. That is your right. That is your individual choice. And so these beliefs in these concepts that somebody has placed on you, that you are this or you are that, we do not have to take that upon ourselves and become that.
0: There was this expectation of who we were supposed to be and that we couldn't rise above that because we were Native or as a lot of people called us, Indian. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode 10 of Debunked. You can find the full
2: episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your
1: podcasts.
0: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanity and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal. KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.
2: After about two years of broadcasting on Friday afternoons, Undisciplined is moving to Thursday mornings at 1030 If you've been listening to our program all along, we sure do hope you'll follow us over to our new day and time. And if you haven't had a chance to catch the program before, we hope you'll catch us then. Science Research Exploration.
1: That's Undisciplined. Thursday mornings at 1030.